the heavy velour draped curtains are there and suddenly we hear and it's obviously Ringo tuning up or something or getting it together. Next minute, this pointy toe comes out under the red draped curtain and the place goes nuts. But that's nothing compared to and do 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 and the curtains oh do, oh yeah and I my head nearly went off like I uh, then you just couldn't hear them do, oh yeah and after that it was just insanity I cannot describe the banshee wailing of abandoned femininity that's Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats with one of the greatest Beatles stories anyone has ever told me. Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Thank you so much for joining me as we record this in the spring of 2020, the spring of COVID-19, the coronavirus. And we're living in different times and the world is in turmoil. And... The very much the way it was back in the mid to late 70s when it was an economic turmoil. Think about what was happening in England with the Tories versus the working class, the coal miners versus the establishment. It was this second round of inflation and layoffs and hippies from the late 60s and was settling in the mid 70s and the boomtown rats emerged. And they were a punk band, but they had this beautiful elegiac song called I Don't Like Mondays about a school shooting. And the saddest part was, that was an anomaly back then. Can we really play it now on the radio when it seems like we hear more and more about it almost every couple of weeks? The world has changed, but Bob Geldof hasn't. Sir Bob Geldof, imagine an Irish kid being knighted by the British Queen. Queen Elizabeth knighting Bob Geldof. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Boomtown Rats and his passion for the Beatles and music. He's always been outspoken. And as I've always felt, there's a direct line between George Harrison doing the concert for Bangladesh, the first big-time superstar rock concert, to this guy, Bob Geldof, taking it even a thousand miles further and putting together Live Aid. He's incredibly talented, intelligent, argumentative, and there's some cursing, which I'm not going to edit out because it's the rhythm of how he talks. Sir Bob Geldof on this edition of Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution on the iHeartRadio app. Tell me why I don't like Mondays, I want to shoot. Sir Bob Geldof, welcome back. Thanks, Ken. Sir Bob Geldof. Yeah. That had to be a little weird for you, and I don't say this is snarky, but for an Irishman who's fighting the power, living through all the troubles, you know, as a kid, hi, we would like to knight you. Yeah. What was your first reaction to that? Well, uh, the first reaction is, uh, okay, um, there had been a huge backlash against Margaret Thatcher refusing to knight me. And um, it, this grew and it became parliamentary. So in the end, she was sort of forced to. Uh, <laughs> but I was kind of unaware of this, that this was a sort of tabloid war and they were using me as a battering ram to beat her up sort of thing. <laughs> and I was away doing my thing, either touring with the rats or in Africa or whatever. And uh, New Year's Day, oh no, i tell you exactly. Um, uh, I'm doing some tracks with Dave Stewart at the Eurythmics um, and we're in Los Angeles and uh, 
a, a man comes along and he said, I'd like to speak to Mr. Geldof. And, you know, the studio person comes in and says, Bob, there's a guy here to see you. I said, yeah, well, send him in. And he comes in and he said, can we speak alone, please? And I said, why? And he said, I need to be alone. And uh, so I said to David... <laughs> Do said, I owe this guy money? Yeah, he wants to speak to me. So he turns out, he said, um, he said, um, uh, Mr. Geldof, Her Majesty is pleased to grant you, or whatever it is, award, what they call it, the honour right. of Knight Commander of the British Empire. I said, oh, th- thanks very much. I didn't know what it meant, you know. I said, that's very nice. I said, he said... Um, you know, will you will you accept it? And I said, eh, you know, kind of Irish, British empires might be a little sticky back at home, <laughs> you know. And I said, is there something else I can have? And he said, I beg your pardon. And like, you a know. clock. Yeah, yeah, like, you know. Pick a card. And, 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 and he said, it's a very high honour. You, you, you will have the title, sir. I said, really? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, fucking sure I have it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so... Uh, uh, and then he says, well, we have to get permission from the Irish Prime Minister. I said, fine. So um, the Prime Minister was a guy called Gareth Fitzgerald. He calls me about seven that night. He said, Bob, we're so proud. He said, and I said, so is is, uh, is it a green light? And he said, of course it's a green light. He said, the whole country is thrilled for you, you know. Right. So uh, then there was that. And then I get a call from uh, uh, the big TV shows at the time in the UK, who's Irish, Terry Wogan. And he was like, I don't know, like uh, like Corbin or like Letterman or something like yeah. that. You know? And um, uh, so um, he comes on, he's, he's, this is amazing. And I'm on the phone and you can hear the whole, the whole audience cheering and stuff. Uh. So it's not like in any way kind of posh. I'm kind of going, wow. But best I call my father who thought I was a complete loser. You know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know? so... Uh, so that was that, and um, and to be serious about it, um, England gave me a life. Yeah, Ireland never gave me a life, which is the whole purpose of the Boomtown Rats is to reject, you know, the <laughs> fact that my generation were offered nothing. It's a sort of political betrayal. Uh, you're offered no future whatsoever. There's a civil war in the country, in the island, where 3,600 people are murdered. There's an utterly corrupt government who are at least tacitly supporting the killers. There's a church who are busily, you know, abusing the children of their parishioners. And there's a zero economy. We react in the only way we know how, by, as Bono calls, making the glorious noise of the Boomtown Rats. And we go to England and they allow us to breathe. There was this great cultural cluster, this great suffocating silence. Everybody was quiet about this. We all knew about the murder. We all knew about the church. We all knew about the cronies and government uh, taking backhanders and all this. We all knew when we said nothing. Well, the Boomtown Rats were not going to be quiet. <laughs> and we got banned in our own country. You did? Yeah, absolutely. When we came back after our the first ever Irish number one in Britain, the first ever New Wave number one, we were banned. Now, it could have been because the Pope had just arrived a month earlier and we were going to use the Pope's tent, you know, like to, to use as a dressing room and that. And literally, this is funny, but it's in the, the film that's just been made about us. And they were not going to have... Bob Geldof and his reprobates in the fucking tent where the church, where the Pope stripped down to his underpants. There's no way we're going to have that. We're not going to have that sacrilegious uh, country, so, boy. And so I go to England and uh, I meet uh, my wife, an English girl. I have my English children. And here's this, and this country gives me my life. 
Uh, they allow me to mouth off. They allow my band to make the music. They allow me to be openly critical. And, um, and then this country gives me the greatest honour, the highest honour that they can possibly give anyone. And they give it to me from their head of state, the sovereign. Right. And you turn around and you're snitty about it? No. It's an amazing honour. And it's been, I've, you know, it's been there forever now. I mean, it's been my whole life. Um, and more to the point, the Irish were thrilled that one of their own had made it to the very top of the social pecking order, if you like. I've no time for that nonsense, Ken. None. <laughs> I've no time for that nationalist, murderous bollocks. It makes me puke. The One of the things about what punk rock was in the mid-70s, it was coming out of a genuine feeling, a genuine rage of what Bob's talking about, that when we saw the clash, when all this came to our shores, we got it. We didn't, it wasn't as deep here as what you felt, but there was that working class rage, as uh, Mick Jones said of the clash, like, listen, we did New York, we knew we had to do New York, but it was this, it was the steel towns, it was the Pittsburghs and the Clevelands of the world where we really connected with the people where we saw the same faces, that it was an industry. It was guys who were working in a dead-end job, coming out and banging their heads and screaming the way we were screaming. And we said that was where we felt the connection, but we knew we had to do New York, Chicago, and L.A. Well, I disagree with you. I mean, um, it, it all happened at the same time, and it happened for the same reason you've just discussed with The Clash. The Clash were more overtly political, but, you know, it's nonsense. I mean, Joe was a middle-class diplomat's son, let's face it. <laughs> right. Okay. And he was living in Regent's Park, which is probably the poshest part of London, with Jasper Conran, who's a note couture fashion designer. Okay. <laughs> and he designed the Clash clothes. So let's get real here. And um, But um, nonetheless, the attitude, it doesn't matter what you came out of, because his attitude was absolutely... They, that, that, that was the way he thought as uh, emblematic of their music. But in you, you said you didn't have it as hard here. You did. Uh, New York was utterly bankrupt in 1974-75. And while the New York Dolls tended to express it through an ironic rock and roll way, it was the Ramones who really nailed it. Absolutely. I mean, don't forget New York, the social services were in disarray. The fire services hardly could answer calls. The police were hardly on the street. You couldn't drive in New York. And when the mayor of New York begged the president of the country to help bail him out, Gerald Ford said, what did he say, was it, he said? He yeah. said, drop dead. He just said, drop dead. Yep. Now, what do you think's going to happen? Right. There's this eruption and it finds its space in a bar in, in the Bowery, you know. And it's, it's again, it's very ironic because you are in the, the great city in the world. You are in the, but in utter poverty, in third world poverty. And of course it's ironic. So you get deep irony with the Ramones who look like a cartoon rock and roll band who play cartoon, perfect cartoon pop. But it is genius because it's full bore. It it's it's angry it's the words are there there doesn't have to be words they're they're brilliant but meaning blitzkrieg pop it's a wop bop a lop bop a lop bamboo it yeah, expresses Richard everything in two minutes so you did have it it just came in a different form richard hell television talking heads blondie 
And at the, f- five months later in Dublin, you had the Boomtown Rats. But we were very, we took our name from Woody Guthrie, the great musical activist. When he was 11, he was in a kid's gang called the Boomtown Rats. And I viewed rock and roll as a form of musical activism, which I took from, uh, to your, your show, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan. Six months after that, you had The Pistols and The Clash starting London. And at that time, the economy of Britain was 27% inflation. Hmm. So these children were going nowhere. They were offered Nothing. no future whatsoever. And in our, I've described Ireland for us. So, of course, it found its expression in a brutal, expressive rock and roll cultural movement, which did away with disco and corporate rock, which is what all you people were hearing. We were destroyed by it. The truth is the Clash never made it. The Pistols never made it here. The Rats never made it. The Ramones, Talking Heads, Patti Smith never made it. Sure they did, Bob. I've been playing those bands on the radio all my life. And it took MTV, a new technology, to come along and show you a newer thing. And that broke through on the level bed that we had made. So suddenly you had Prince, you had Cindy Lauper, you had Madonna, you had Michael Jackson, you had Duran Duran, you had The Police, you had U2. So that's what happened. So you reworking rock and roll history doesn't work with me, dude, you know? Well, what happened was it's like anything else. It was a victim of its own success. I'm... It it wasn't successful, Ken. No, no, here's the thing, is that rock and roll, when it started for me, FM radio, nobody had FM radios. Scott Muni leaves, he's my God, my hero, he's our rock dad. You met him, you played you, he lived for it. He walks away from the biggest job in the world and the biggest radio station in America to start this station, NEW, for no money. I said, that's... You had a family. How did you walk away? He goes, it's where the music was going, Fats. You have to follow the music. And sure enough, just as the Beatles left She Loves You, yeah, 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 to get to psychedelic imagery and escapism and write, and you suddenly this happy little boy band has Within You, Without You on their masterpiece in again, 67. Again, I, I have a totally different view of it. But, I, but here's, let me finish this. What happened was, since everybody followed it, this cool underground music for hippies became so popular that it became the bank. And it became suddenly, music is only on FM, AM is pushed aside to talk shows, and when something is making that much money, when the Beatles and the Stones and the Who suddenly are making that much money, you can't keep corporate America out. No, I understand why that happened, but you see that, so that eventually evolves into punk. Right. And, you know, so all of these things have a reason. So to the greater essay, if you like, is that the rock and roll age is kind of over, in my view. Um, And why? Because it was the central spine of the culture. You've just described a music that gave us all our political, social, cultural, moral, economic ideas. That's what that's how it was transmitted through through these bands. And uh, and that was the social media of our time. Um, And it was radical. Now music has gone back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It's about individual tunes. It's about voices. It's about talent, uh, ability. Um, you know, the, the craft. I don't have any of that. I only have attitude. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, when the Beatles came, they came with a thing or else it wouldn't have worked. And that thing was they destroyed the idea of deference, the idea of being deferential to authority, to your parents, to anything. And they were just 
uh, seemingly cheeky chappies. In fact, they were deathlessly <laughs> abrasive and sarcastic, <laughs> you know, but they didn't know it. Uh, they were just laughing at parents and authority but it was so innocent it was so infectious and she loves you yeah 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 is the blitzkrieg bop of its time yeah. you try writing that perfect joy the fact is they say yes three times a lot yeah 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 and that's what you kind of went yes it's not yeah 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 you know it's yeah you know, yes, right. absolutely. Think the minute you heard it. So the, the Stones come along and they're not showing just so much as lack of deference. They're showing contemptuous yeah. insolence. You know, yeah. they don't care about, any, not even the audience. I saw them at right. that time. You know, they're sort of, well, their eyes are wandering around the stage and sort of they're looking half out of it. And you go, yeah, man, how do I get into this? And Dylan comes along and frames it and right. says, it's changing, dude. Get out of the way. Right. Did uh, you ever see the Beatles? Yeah. Tell me. 64, Cinnamon, Dublin. What'd you think? Um, my sister had to take me. Um, my dad made her take, we went with, <laughs> with her friend. And she wasn't mad for them. They were just the big thing. So we had to go. She was mad for Cliff Richard in the shadows at the time. Ah, yeah. And, uh, you know, her, her my, my two sisters, their ceiling and wall was covered with Cliff. Um, <laughs> We're um, going on a yeah. summer holiday. Uh, the early rock and roll things are yeah. sub Elvis, but they're okay. It was weird. Look, Helen Shapiro had started off. Right, she was the headliner. She was the headliner. And I was mad for her because she was 11. She looked like Amy Winehouse. Okay. And I wanted to hear Walking Back to Happiness, Whoopa, Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah, which was her <laughs> hit. And, um, and But She Loves You, Yeah, 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 seems to trump Whoopa, Oh Yeah, Oh Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we go, and it's a, it's a cinema. And uh, the floors are slanting down towards the screen and there's two rows that you walk down to get to your seat and there's green marbled lino. Do you remember lino? Lino, green linoleum. And we're about slightly more than halfway back up the stalls and there's just nothing but girls. So I'm thinking this is a bit lame. I don't like girls. You're how old? And um, 10 or something. Yeah. So... Uh, the girls are restless and, you know, there's no time for anybody else. And the girls are about 12, 13, certainly no more in my memory. So they're big girls for me. But I have to sit inside on the second seat between my sister and Michelle, her maid. And the heavy velour draped curtains are there. And suddenly we hear, doosh, 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 doosh. And it's obviously Ringo tuning up or something or getting yeah. it together. Uh, but nobody gets that. It's just a noise. And next minute, this pointy toe comes out <laughs> under the red drape curtain and the place goes nuts. But that's nothing compared to and uh, do-do-doom, do-do-doom, and the curtains, oh, oh yeah. And it, I, my head nearly went off. Like I, <laughs> I nearly never, one, I'd never heard it. But then you just couldn't hear them. That, I mean, right. seriously, you heard, dun, 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 oh, yeah. Uh, and after that, that it. it was just <laughs> insanity. No, you're doing a noise. I can do words because I'm Irish, but I cannot describe the banshee wailing of abandoned femininity. Beautifully said. I saw the, the, the Bay City Rollers. I saw 1D. I saw Duran Duran. I saw Take That. There is no comparison to the 
lostness, the gonest girls in the planet. And it freaked me out that this was, as I said, abandoned femininity. I, I'm a kid, like, you know, girls, eh, you know. Yeah. Uh, but to see raw womanhood, I mean, like, freaked me out. Like, like you know, I was kind of was panicked. And then my sister, her love of Cliff abandoned in a nanosecond, <laughs> is stretching out. Like, I'm looking at my sister. What is wrong? Get a grip. And she's going, George, George, you know. And, uh, and I look behind her. I lean back as she's straining forward. And I, you know, I look down at the aisle with the green, green lino and it's streaming with piss, you know. <laughs> and what's it? And it's forming little rivulets <laughs> from the dirt of the soles of all the shoes. So oh. little banks of, you know. Couldn't and, help it. And, and as I said, so for me, unfortunately, the beats have always been this, the smell of girls peeing. There's well, no story that can top that. But here's one. We crossed the road to the Gresham Hotel, which we know the Beatles are staying in because there's a couple of thousand people outside. And we seem to be the only ones to get the plot that we should go around the back. So we go around the back and we find what we now call the service stairs. But we just thought, yeah, we, we'd sneak in. Being the Beatles, obviously they're going to stay on the top floor. I mean, it's the Beatles, you know. So we walk all the way up the service things and push open the fire door and we're in the the top corridor. And, of course, being the Beatles, they obviously all stay in the same room together. It's the Beatles, you know. They live in the same house. They all stay in the same room. So we look down the corridor and there's the double doors of the suite at the end. So that must be theirs because it's the Beatles. So they're going to be in the biggest room. And we knock on the door you know, hoping for the best. And this beautiful doe-eyed boy in a black waistcoat and an undone white shirt and a black tie answers, yeah, hello, hello kids, yeah. Whoa. It's Paul, you know. I'm less in awe, but amazed that the whole scam worked. And my <laughs> sisters are just going, and the face I'm doing is my eyes roll back in my head and my mouth jaw drop open. And I... I've seen this because George came to see the rats at a gig in Oxford and he came back to say hi. And our sound guy had an American girlfriend from California. And I said, uh, George, this, you know, I was, I didn't say it as cool as this, you know. <laughs> Fuck me, it's a beetle, you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, George, this is uh, Robbie and this is Debbie or whatever her name is. And, you know, she just did that face. Yeah, just, you can't just help stared. it. You don't know what to and do. George was used to it and he just said, hi, Debbie, and just walked past. I promise you, she stayed exactly there, like hypnotised for minutes, just stood there, like couldn't move. And Robbie was going, get a grip, you're embarrassing me. And she was just like can't that. Help it. Anyway, Paul invites us in. <laughs> and there are Ringo and George. George is, of course, annoyed. <laughs> that he's and he he lifts up his hands like in a, in a you know what, what the are fuck you doing? so yeah uh, what are you doing and like sort of expression I can't show you because I'm on radio <laughs> and Paul just goes what he does what what what's wrong with you? he doesn't say that but he just does a what what's wrong with you two expression? kids so what yeah three Michelle right. Lynn and Bob um, and uh, here's the here's the question to your to your listeners. What are the three Beatles doing in their one and a half hour gap between the matinee and the six o'clock show? John isn't there. He must be off doing press or something. What are the Beatles doing in their Beatle outfits, <laughs> sitting around one table, smoking fags? What are they doing? Come on, Ken. You're the Re Beatle expert. 
writing a song? No. Eating? Drinking? No. Playing cards? No. Not a bad try. Answering personally the stacks of fan mail. Wow. On the thing. So Epstein said, it's professional show business. You've got 18 months to do this, guys. You make sure that you answer all your things. There, they were sweat, laboring ways, like straight after the show, back home, you know, something right. to back. You have, Hi, uh, have a, yeah, nice to see you. Get down so. to work. So they signed the first album, subsequently lost. Oh. Yeah. And so that that's uh, my Beatles story. Bob Geldof, for the first time, speaking of albums, the first time in 36 years, mm. not that you take too long between albums, we get a new... But proof. is it worth it, Ken? Uh, there's a song, <laughs> Trash Glam Baby. Let's play them a snippet. That's a great sound, Bob. It's a good record. It's great. Um, the rats came, and we've described the conditions out of which the Cultural Revolution of '76 happened. Name check all of that of '76 of Saturday Night and Rollers and the and the Dolls and all yeah. that. And it's it's when I see someone like that, when I see a, a young kid even today in 2020 in New York with a mohawk or fishnets or stars, it warms my heart for There's, that. Path. There needs to be a reaction to the current atmosphere of fear. Yep. Uh, we're looking down the barrel of hopelessness. Were I a kid today, I'd be seriously scared. I'm scared. I'm an old guy. I'm scared. Um, um, it turns out our generation is just as bad, if not worse, than the others. We've we've left, left children with a world that is existentially imperiled. And we've elected fools to mediate this world. And Bobby Boomtown was getting more and more enraged and all he ever knows how to do is to use the rhetoric of rock and roll and the platform of rock and roll to express that. And the seven solos albums I did between the demise of the band and now were are good. They're about that life, but they're not the um, unstudied, unmediated anger. They're not the guy who will say or do anything on stage and not care about the consequences. He's not that guy. He's tempered. He's rational. He's something else. Bobby Boomtown needs his mates to propel that, to express the noise, as I said, the glorious noise, as Bono correctly called it. And if I was to tell you the noise I wanted, it's at the beginning of Trash Glam Baby, in, in a nutshell. It's the New York Dolls meets early Roxy music mixes up with Mott the Hoople. I was just going to say, it was the first thing that hit me was Mott the Hoople in a new context. Yeah. Bob Geldof, you're going on tour with this, yes? Well, if anyone's interested. So I need you to come back. This is a whole nother show to talk about how we go from George Harrison and Bangladesh to the greatest event that rock has ever done mm. of Live Aid. Thank you so much for sharing your time. You're welcome, you so. man.